بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على المبعوث رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد The book we're about to cover inshallah is called Al-Anwar fi Adab al-Suhba which means Al-Anwar means the lights so the whole idea here is to show the light and mention the etiquettes of companionship with others. So although the primary reason for speaking about this companionship is how one can benefit from others and then inshallah benefit others. So one is to sit with good company and to benefit from righteous people, from righteous groups of people and sit with them how to best benefit from them and then inshallah benefit others. So the reason why this book was written was as the author mentions that the way he says it, it could be open to two interpretations. He uses the word batala. The word batala as in Arabic, there's many terms in Arabic which seem to... There's many words in Arabic which can be used for the positive and for the negative. The same word can be used for a positive idea and the same word can be used for a negative idea. And batala is one of those words. So batala, batula, one of it is to be batil, to be invalid, to be idle, to be useless, to be ineffective and to be redundant. That's one meaning of to be batil, batala. That's what it means. Batala would mean idleness, to be ineffective, nothing. But batala can also mean, in fact, if you look at the modern usage of the term, it's about heroism, to be a hero. So it's totally opposite of being idle, to be a hero, to get up and do something. So Arabic has this ability to... and. You might be wondering, well, how do you determine whether it's a positive or a negative meaning? Generally, that's done with context. There's many words like that in Arabic. In fact, as you know, Arabic is mostly written without vowels. And you have to try to figure out what exactly this word is saying. But once you get used to it and you understand the method of the language, it's quite easy to figure these things out. However, the way he uses this word here, as we will cover when we actually start the book, he says that Batala has pushed me to write this work. The reason I wrote this book is because of Batala. Now what does that mean? Is it because of chivalry? It's only common decency to write about this. It's necessary for me to write about this. That's the demand of the time to write about this. Some would say that is what he meant. Yet there's other people who've explained this book and said, no, he doesn't mean that. He's actually referring to the fact that what he saw of the people of his time. He saw a lot of batala among the scholars of his time. Among the elect of his time, which is idleness. They've learned so much. They've studied so much, but they don't practice. Now, uh, people who are not scholars should not think that they have a clear ticket here. And all the blame is on the scholars. If that's the case with the scholars, that generally is a reflection of the community. It's generally a reflection of the community. If the scholars sit down and become idle, then everybody will sit down and become idle. If everybody sits down and becomes useless and redundant, they don't act according to their knowledge, 
then if the scholars do that, then non-scholars will also do that because nobody is there to encourage them. People just need an excuse. So, there's no doubt that he's looking at his contemporaries and he feels that people have maybe spent a lot of time in learning. And remember, this is the time after a rich period in Egypt. So he's, he's, in Egypt. he's in Egypt. He entered Egypt, uh, or rather Cairo. Cairo is the center of Islamic studies at the time. You know, different areas have had this honor of being the place where knowledge and science is being studied and analyzed and uh, lots of new research is coming to the fore. Baghdad, Damascus, um, Egypt, Cairo was one of these places. So initially, Allama Sha'arani was somewhere else. He was outside in the reef, reef of Misr, which is upper Egypt, the Sa'id of Misr. Then he came into Cairo and that's where he benefited from great scholars. This is, he, he was, uh, when he was quite young, he was born in 890 something. So just towards the end of that century. Imam Suyuti died in 911, 911 Hijri. So he met Suyuti as a, uh, as an, as a small, uh, as, a, as a child, he met Suyuti. But that's the time when you had some great scholars in Egypt. Line of great scholars had just passed and produced and contributed to the sciences of hadith and fiqh and tafsir and many, many other sciences. So he came and there's a lot of buzz. Uh, there's a lot of activity down there. So he came and benefited from all of that. But what he did see was that a lot of people did study. There were a lot of ulama, but he felt that they were idle. They were ineffective. They weren't doing the work. So can you imagine the state of the scholars of this time and the people of this time? That's why you see that the Muslim world is on fire right now with constant problems throughout. So Imam Sha'arani, he generally defines this term in other places as not acting by the knowledge that you have. Batala. To be batil, to be ineffective and useless if you don't act by the knowledge that we have. And each one of us is required to increase our knowledge and then to act by that knowledge and may Allah give us the tawfiq. Because knowledge without practice is like a bee without honey. What does a bee do that's without honey? If it's not producing benefit and honey, then it's going to go and sting someone. The only other thing it can do is harm people. So that's why if it's not producing honey, it's not busy with the production of honey, what else is it going to do? It's going to die out. Nothing's going to happen to it. So the topic of this book is about encouraging good companionship because he believes that to learn closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to get true piety and righteousness for the majority of people, the only way to do it is by the way that has been shown by Rasulullah in his time. Who are the most famous people of Rasulullah's time? The Sahaba. And they call the Sahaba. They are called the Sahaba, Sahabi, which comes from the same term, which is Suhba. His book's name is Adab al-Suhba, Al-Anwar fi Adab al-Suhba, the, the traits of companionship, the etiquette of companionship. So he's saying that this is a, a tawaruth that we have, this is a heritage that we have, an inheritance from the time of the Sahaba. So that's why they're called Sahaba because they stayed in the companionship of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The tabi'een are only called the tabi'een because they followed the Sahaba and stayed in their companionship.
But they can't call them Sahaba as well because that would be confusing. So they call them Tabi'een, followers, successors instead. And, then, and so on. And this has been the tradition. So he reckons that the way to connect knowledge and action together is by witnessing it, staying in the company of the righteous and the pious, and thus you learn, you get that environment to learn this in. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, in fact it's a command in the Quran, Allah says, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu attaqullaha wa kunu ma'as-sadiqeen. O people who believe, fear Allah and be with the truthful ones. Truthful, not just by their tongue, but truthful in action. Who have really shown Allah the truth, that I am a truthful individual in my behavior as well, in my connection with you. So sohbah is the practical way that takes one to purifying the heart. Purifying the heart. Shedding the blameworthy traits, purifying the blameworthy traits and calamities from it. To take on the adornment of the righteous people that we read about. It is the way by which the believer's heart is strengthened. And a believer's reliance in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala increases. And the best of people are those who treat others with affection and who themselves are treated with affection. And the Prophet said, Al-Mu'minu ma'laf, wala khayra fi man la ya'lif, wala yu'laf. The believer is a place of affection. The way he deals with others, it's an affectionate way. That's his behavior, that's his way of doing things. And he's such that people will also deal with him with affection. They don't run a mile from him, they don't want to speak to him. Or, you know, they, they, he's not such that they don't want to speak to him at all. So, a poet says, alchemy is not that stones become silver pieces. But that darkness in a person's heart, darkness from around us, is removed by the light that comes in. Because if light shines and takes away the darkness and the miseries and the worries, then that is superior to stones becoming silver pieces. So who is this author that writes about this? Uh, nobody, anybody who's studied any kind of uh, the heritage of spirituality in Islam, the Sawuf, Sufism, whatever you wanna, uh, however you wanna term this field, uh, they or anybody who studied Egypt for the last several hundred years, uh, he is one of the big scholars of Egypt, one of the big scholars of Egypt. Allama Sha'arani has written numerous. I, I was totally amazed when I just read what kind of studies he'd undertaken. It's just kind of borders on the impossibility. You know, it's, it's kind of amazing. So his name is Abu Muhammad, that's his title. Abdul Wahhab, uh, Ibn Ahmad al-Sha'rawi. Sha'rawi, famous scholars in Egypt called Sha'rawi. Um, they're also Sha'rani, same thing. Sha'rawi, Sha'rani, they, they use either. Al-Shafi'i, so he's Shafi'i in his fiqh, Shafi'i in his Tasawwuf and al-Misri, the Egyptian. Uh, what, uh, what happened with his family was that his family came through Tilimsan. Tilimsan is a place in Algeria. And it's kind of very interesting these days that 
how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives honor to certain places for certain times. In certain centuries, for certain periods of time, uh, there's a great honor of a place. Everybody wants to go there. It becomes very famous. And then suddenly, it no longer remains as famous. Tilimsan, several hundred years ago, was known. It was the place of the Mashaykh. It was uh, Abu Madian, the great, the great Wali of Allah, was there. Numerous scholars came through, numerous pious awliya came from Tilimsan. Today, brothers, do you know anything about Algeria? Do you know about any scholarship from Algeria? Do you know anything about, what do you know about Algeria today? Unfortunately, you'll be talking about the civil war that took place, where they voted for an Islamic government, and it was, the army overturned it, and the next 10 years saw gruesome killings and murders and things of that nature, a massive civil war. Now there's some semblance of stability, but still a very militar, militant government that's there. You don't really hear about much scholarship. The Jazairi scholars that you hear, you hear about today are living in other countries like Saudi Arabia and other places. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provides different places with these things. It's ajeeb. Baghdad has had that great... Baghdad is a place of amazing, amazing, amazing awliya. Unfortunately, today it's difficult to visit and difficult to, uh, to visit these, uh, you know, to, to see these places. Uh, Damascus, again, another place totally surrounded. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect these areas. Egypt has gone through its stages as well. And you have many, many places like that. So his family, some of his ancestors had settled first in Tilimsan. Um, his grandfather, there was one grandfather of his whose name was Sheikh Musa ibn Sultan Ahmed. He was the one who met this great Sheikh Abu Madian. There's some great books about Sheikh Abu Madian, the wedding of Allah. So he stayed in his company and he was nurtured by Sheikh Abu Madian. He benefited greatly from him. He took his spiritual path from him. He got all of his tarbiyah and all of his uh, spiritual uh, education and understanding was, was through Abu Madian. And then Abu Madian sent him to Egypt, that you should go and help the people there, to Upper Egypt, the Sa'id of Misr, as they call it, Upper Egypt. Egypt is a very strange place. Upper Egypt is actually Southern Egypt. Because you, uh, you have Cairo, and then above that to the north, to the Mediterranean, you have Alexandria. These are the two main cities of Egypt today. And you have some cities in between like uh, Damanhur and Mansura and other, other cities. But when you go down south, that's where you get places like Taha, from where Imam Tahawi was from. Asyut, which is a famous city in Egypt. It was a major town during the Crusades as well. This is where Alama Suyuti is from. So this is all southern Egypt, what they call Upper Egypt, because that's the Upper Nile. Egypt, I think if there's one country which everybody knows about, it's Egypt. Egyptology with all the pharaoh, you know, the pharaonic uh, heritage and that is quite an amazing, uh, quite an amazing. In fact, if there was any country that we learned about first, because we had a geography teacher who was an Egyptologist, that's probably Egypt. It's got so much culture, so much heritage. Starts off with the pharaonic, goes into... Amr ibn Allah, who was the first one to conquer Egypt and bring it under the hands of the Muslimin. So you have his great masjid called the Masjid of Amr ibn As. Of course, it's much bigger than it was at that time. And that's where Cairo started. That's where Egypt started. Cairo started there, right? Which is uh, kind of south of the city right now. Then you have 
other dynasties that came in and took over. For example, the Tulunids, they ruled Egypt for a while. So you have the Ibn Tulun Mosque. So it was the capital of the Tulunid Empire. Then after that, you have the Fatimids, the, the, Ithna, the, the, the Shiite uh, Ismaili Fatimids, who ruled uh, much of that area at that time. They're the one who established the first university, which is Azhar, was established by them. They were Shia, the Seveners, the Batinites. So uh, they, you have the Fatimid, you have their king's palaces and masjids and so on and so forth. So you have the heritage from that time. You have the heritage from the Mamluk time, from the Seljuk time, from uh, Muhammad Ali Basha. Uh, you have the Ottoman. So you have like seven, eight like that. Then you have, um, uh, what do you call it? You have a number of others that I can't even recall at this point in time. You have about seven to ten dynasties that have ruled and they've left their remnants down there. That's why they say that Cairo is a city of a thousand minarets. There's masjids all over the place. Sometimes masjids next to each other. You go behind the Azhar or in front of the Azhar into the gullies and you'll see some huge complexes. Huge complexes. Sometimes the masjids are next to each other. There's the Sultan Hassan and the Rifai Mosque right opposite each other, literally. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala fill them up again once. Uh, once again, may Allah fill them up and have the place blazing with its nur. So you, you can see that this is a place of great heritage and any scholar that came from there, you can understand that they must have been they must have got the best of what was available at the time but anyway initially his great great grandfather he settled in outside of cairo uh, in the uh, in in upper egypt and their family it hails from muhammad ibn al-hanafiya who knows who muhammad ibn al-hanafiya is muhammad ibn al-hanafiya he is who Right, he's the son of Ali radiallahu anhu, the kind of lesser known son, not from Fatima. That's why he's said Muhammad ibn al Hanafiya. Muhammad, the son of Hanafiya, another wife of Ali radiallahu Because Ali radiallahu was married to Fatima radiallahu anha. Fatima radiallahu anha passed away within six months after Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa passed away. Ali radiallahu married others after that. So al Hanafiya. So this was his son. He had Hassan and Hussein from Fatima radiallahu That's where you get the Sayyids and the Shurafa. But then there's another uh, descendant, a line of descendants from him, which is from Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiya. And this family comes from Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiya, from Ali radiallahu anhu. So he's a Qurashi and a Hashimi in that sense. Still a Qurashi and a Hashimi in the general tribe. He was born, in particular, he was born in 898 Hijri. Uh, 898, so how many years are we speaking about? About 500 years? So about 500 years ago, 898, he was born in the, uh, in the village of his forefathers and his father, uh, his father passed away very early on, 907. So he was, uh, what, how old was he, nine years, nine years old? Uh, yes, he was nine years old. He was born in 898, 907 is when his father passed away. So he's about nine years old at this time. His mother also passed away very soon after that. Then that family moved to Cairo in 9-11, the year Suyuti passed away. That's the year when Imam Suyuti passes away in 9-11. So they moved to Cairo in 9-11 from Upper Egypt. At the age of 12, he was uh, by then around 12 years old when he moved. And there he was brought up as an orphan. But now this is the great thing. Subhanallah, we have so many people. I mean, the, this is the sunnah in, in, in a sense because the Prophet ﷺ is brought up as an orphan. But look what he achieved. 
Look what he achieved. Generally speaking, single parent families, orphans, they don't fare too well. But there are so many examples of success. There are so many successful examples. And Sha'rani is definitely one of them. And our Rasulullah is another one. So from a young age, he comes to Cairo, huge scholars around. He gets into studying, he first memorizes the Quran, memorizes numerous other texts of fiqh and hadith and others by heart. Some of the books of even logic and so on, he was memorizing by heart. Talqis al-Miftah, he, he memorized that by heart as well, for the ulama who know that. Then he moved on to studying the lengthy commentaries and the bigger books, the mabsuts, the, the bigger books, the commentaries, and the larger books, he starts studying them. When I just read the list of tafsirs that he has read, that he has studied, I just was absolutely astonished. Like just studying one of those major tafsirs of seven, eight, nine, ten volumes from cover to cover is an achievement today. You know, how many people do you know who've read the whole of tafsir al-Tabari, right, which is about 20 something volumes? Or even Ibn Kathir, from cover to cover. These are big tafsir. The, uh, tafsir the, Ibn Kathir is not that big. It's about four volumes. But still, these are big things. Most people use them as references today rather than actually read through them. And he read through at least 25 tafsirs. Some of them are two volumes and three volumes. And others are 50 volumes and some even 100 volumes. And he read them all. And just that much, that if you just look at the tafsir uh, that he read and studied, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. So he studied at least 20 to 25 voluminous tafsirs of the Qur'an. Then he studied a number of hadith collections. The actual hadith collections themselves. Then he studied the major commentaries on those hadith collections. So if I just give you the example of Bukhari, when he studied Sahih al-Bukhari, he started studying the commentaries on Sahih al-Bukhari. For example, on Sahih al-Bukhari, he read the commentaries of Ibn Hajar, the Fathul Bari. The Fathul Bari is about 18 volumes and not an easy read. Very complex. It really opens up Sahih al-Bukhari and explains it. You know, they teach Sahih al-Bukhari in one year in many of the madaris. But it's very difficult to teach every single hadith and study it carefully. You know, you have to rush through some of them because it's, you, got so much, you, you only have so much time. He was just literally locked away reading all of these things. He was studying. He was in a masjid where he was studying with one of his teachers. And that's where he was. He was away from people just studying. Just focus, focus, focus. Just study, study, study. Um, he, he read the commentaries of Fatul Bari, Kirmani. Barmawi, Aini, another 18 volume commentary, Qastallani, among other commentaries as well. Then, I don't, I'm not mentioning the commentaries on Muslim that he read, Sahih Muslim that he read. The commentaries of Nawi and Sheikh Zakaria Al-Ansari and numerous others. And it says that he had a very good contact that was able to get all of these books for him. Because in those days, it wasn't easy to get books. Now, now nowadays, you, nowadays, within the last 10 years, you can actually search online, you get PDFs of most of these books. You know, somebody scanned them. The Alexandria Library in Egypt, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Alexandria, it's a massive library. They have this um, project to scan. 
huge number of books that are published and there's there's many of these websites that include a lot of these books nowadays in those days these books used to be handwritten and you know it, it was expensive to have them written to get them but somehow Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him a contact where he was able to get this now this is I just to give you an example in every subject this is what he did he did this in fiqh the kinds of books that he studied in fiqh all the shafi'i works the big and small it's not a joke he didn't just study three shafi'i fiqh books and now call himself a mufti you know he studied tens of books in shafi'i fiqh in usul al-fiqh in fatawa there's a range of fatawa that he studied books on fatawa numerous books he read in lugha and language there was one arabic um, a lexicon uh, arabic uh, 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 lexicon um, uh, which he read about 20 times so you can see his mastery over the arabic language today you have to specialize you can't do everything but this was a time when the barakah somehow you were able to do lots of things I w I'm, I'm spending some time on this because i want people to understand that we have a heritage we have a legacy and this is just one scholar among those that you didn't even know about. So can you imagine the likes of Ghazali and Ibn Taymiyyah and others that people do know about? Sha'rani, how many of you had heard of Sha'rani before this? <coughs> Come on, at least one hand. Okay, one, two, three. There you go. Yes, yeah, so we have a, th a few people who've heard, heard about Sha'rani. Can you then imagine the people that were well known? The people like, uh, like uh, Ibn Hajj al-Asqalani and others who people know more than Sha'rani. So I just wanted to give you an idea about this. In Sirah, he read a number of books. There's one which is called the Sirah Halabiyah, Sirah Shamiyah, which is considered to be one of the most uh, comprehensive books on Sirah because it's based on a hundred books. He also read that one and he read a number of other Sirahs, the famous Sirahs of Ibn Hisham and so many other Tariq books that he read. When it comes to the books of Tasawwuf, uh, of, uh, of spirituality he, uh, he, he, re he read all of them Makki, uh, uh, Abu Talib al-Makki's Qutul Qulub Nourishment of the Hearts uh, Imam Muhasibi's Al-Ri'aya Abu Nu'im's Hilya Hilya is a massive book Hilya to Awliya it's a story of the of the Awliya hundreds of stories thousands of stories of the Awliya it's, you know big book Hilya to Awliya Qushayri's Risada Suhrawardi's Al-Awarif Al-Ma'arif Ghazali's Ihya You know, how many scholars today are there who've read the whole of the Ihya Ulum al-Din which is in about 5-6 volumes Ahmad al-Zahid's Risalat al-Nur Ghumari's Minahu al-Minna Harawi's Manazil al-Sa'irin Kashani's Fusus Qasri's Shu'ab al-Iman Not Bayhaqi, Qasri, another one Some of these we haven't even heard about and all of Al-Yafi'i's books. Then he also read Ibn Arabi's Futuhat, which is a, high, a bit of a controversial work, which he then abridged and cleared of all the interpolations that he thought were found in it. So he did an abridgment of the work. So this was a highly study, studious, productive scholar. Believe me, if, if, if any scholar can read all of these books in just one subject today, they would think it's an achievement. Reading just one complete tafsir is an achievement today. Because we have, we're so busy with so many other things. That was a simple life. 
Um, he, that's all he was focused on. He didn't care about other pretenses and other, other honors and things of that nature. Now remember, he was in Cairo. This was the time of the Ottoman Caliphate, which was being ruled from Istanbul, from Turkey. So on one occasion, the Khalif, the, the khalif of the Muslimin, the Muslim world at that time, Sultan Salim, Sultan Salim, as they say, he visited Cairo. Now this was like an Eid day for the Sultan to have visited Cairo. This became like an Eid day. It didn't happen often. It was all the dignitaries, all the great ulama, and all of these people were out there visiting the king. Sha'rani preferred to stay in the shadows. He stayed in his zawiya. Now, he was not a person unknown. He was very renowned at that time for his knowledge and his piety. So the Sultan recognized, you know, when rulers know who are the big people of each city and town, they keep tabs. That's why they're rulers. They can't be silly. They, they keep abreast of all of these things. They know what's going on. Uh, there are certain countries in the world, certain Muslim countries, they don't, even, they don't even encourage scholarship in their countries. That's why you have so few scholars from around, from, from their own population, from their own citizens. All the scholars are imported and they cannot speak whatever they want. They have to speak, they have to give the khutbah that's produced by the state. That's why those countries have been called the refrigerator of the ulama, ulama freezer. Big scholars from different parts of the world, they go there, they become imams and they can't do anything but give small, small lectures or whatever, they can't teach what they want. Because the government does not want anybody to become so popular that it would threaten them. Their idea is to keep peace. Their idea is to keep peace. There's some, there's some countries who have a tradition of scholarship, so they can't help it. So if you look at Saudi Arabia, for example, they've got scholars like Al-Arifi and others who are very popular. The government definitely does probably feel threatened by these individuals. But they can't do much because they're their own citizens. They do end up like Hudhayfi and others. They do end up going to prison once in a while. But you just have to understand the psyche of what's going on here. And this is not just the case of today. This has always been the case. This has always been the case. And that's why the majority of scholars have always preferred to just do their work without challenging. Because that's the safe way. If everybody was to challenge, it could become a rebellion. There's very few who actually challenged and got away with it. Like the likes of Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal. Izzuddin ibn Abdul Salam is probably the boldest scholar that I've read about. Who actually did what he did and was not persecuted. Well, he was imprisoned for a while. But he was able to just go in and say what he wanted and he still get a, got away with it. Because that's how he managed to get to the hearts of the, the, the rulers. He was just an ajib personality. He was in Egypt as well at one time. Anyway, the Sultan became aware that Sha'rani is not around. He did not come to visit. So he himself went to visit him in his retreat. To the amazement of all of those who witnessed this. Everybody was out there to visit the king. And the king goes to visit Sha'rani. And everybody's totally amazed by this state. You can't put this on. You know, you can't say, I'm not going to go, he's going to come to me. That's just not going to happen. That's pride, that's arrogance. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't allow that to happen. When you're so humble and when you're so mustaghani, 
which means you're so independent of anything and your focus is directly on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then these kind of things happen. It has to be true piety and true reliance and trust in Allah. That's why the main governor of the area whose name was Ali Basha, Ali Basha, once he came to him, he, uh, and he was going to go to Turkey, to Istanbul to visit the Khalif. So maybe as a favor or whatever the case is, he came to Sheikh uh, Sha'rawi, uh, Sheikh Sha'rani, and he said to him that, I've got a position with the Khalif, and I'm very close to the Khalif, I've got contacts with him, right? If you've got any need, if you have any hajj, if you have any requirement from him, let me know. Basically saying that, I'll put in a good word for you if there's something that you need. Oh yeah, yeah, give me this big land, I need to build a madrasa, I need to build this, I need to build a house, or this, that and the other. No. You know what he said? Allahu Akbar. He said, do you have any need with Allah? Do you have any need with Allah? We're very close to His presence. So you're trying to intercede for me to the king, I'll intercede for you to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Obviously he did this as a teacher, as a, as a murabbi, to teach him, to admonish him. He didn't do this out of arrogance. It says he did this out to teach him that, look, you don't, these are not things that you speak about like this. Now, a person who can say that in the face of this kind of request is that that is, that is sincere, that is true. Allah Sha'amani studied with uh, some of the greatest scholars of his time. Some we will have heard about, some we don't. As I said, as a child, he met Imam Suyuti. Um, <clears throat> he studied many books with Sheikh Zakaria al-Ansari. Sheikh Zakaria al-Ansari is... They, the Shafi'is, they call him, they say Shaykhul Islam. When a Shafi say Shaykhul Islam, they mean Shaykh Zakaria Al-Ansari. Qala Shaykhul Islam. They just refer to him as that. He is the Shaykhul Islam of the, the Shafi'is. When the Hanafis say Shaykhul Islam, we have about three or four or five famous ones. Shaykhul Islam, Khahir Zada, Shaykhul Islam, number of others. So when it, the Hanafis say it, you have to know who they're talking about. When the Shafi'is say it, it's Shaykh Zakaria Al-Ansari. He's buried next to Imam Shafi'i. If you go to Egypt today, Imam Shafi'i's grave, Sheikh Zakaria al-Ansari is buried there. So he studied with Sheikh Zakaria al-Ansari for a lengthy period. Lengthy period, he studied many, many books with him. Sheikh Ali al-Khawas was his main teacher and his spiritual sheikh as well. Great wali of Allah. He studied with Sheikh Ali al-Mursifi. He studied with Sheikh Shihabuddin al-Qastallani. Great commentator of Bukhari. He wrote the commentary of Bukhari. So you can kind of see who, which kind of scholars he's studying by. Their caliber, their status, their level of knowledge and understanding and academics. So you can see it has to rub off Sheikh Muhammad al-Shannawi. However, he was closest to Sheikh Ali al-Khawas. Al-Khawas, such that generally their names, in fact, he was probably more famous than his Sheikh. That's why their names come in. He was the one who probably popularized the Shaykh. He was relatively unknown wali of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, Shaykh Ali al-Khawas was an accomplished spiritual guide of the time. A beacon for spiritual inspiration all around him. And Sha'rani was his proof that this is a man he had produced by his tarbiyah. This was a man that he had produced. After <clears throat> Sha'rani had spent those years studying all the primary texts and then completed his other higher books and other studies. This Sheikh Ali al-Khawas told him once, I want you to take all of your books, that all of these books that he had acquired, I want you to take all of them and sell them. I want you to get rid of them. I want you to sell them and then I want you to donate the money. 
That was very difficult for him to do. Because he said that these books were really excellent copies that I, you know, get, uh, good scholars, they're going to try to get the best books, most excellent copies in those days. He said, I'd really collected some of the most excellent copies. And I found that very difficult to do. So I did what my Shaykh told me to do. This was all about the tarbiyah, right? This was to move him to focus away from apparent words to the inner spirituality. Some of you may not understand this, but he says, when I did sell them and I did get rid of them, my mind constantly went to them. I was still preoccupied with them. I, you know, a scholar getting rid of his books, that's a sacrifice. And that sacrifice has to be for something bigger. So then my Shaykh said, I want you to engage yourself in abundant dhikrullah, to occupy yourself away from that. This will take care of it. So he said that's what he did. And then after that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him, gave him much more than before. He opened up much more than before. And this is not something that is so mystical. It doesn't have to be. If you become a teacher, a serious teacher, you will sit in this place and teach something. When you're teaching, things will open up to you by the grace of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that you did not understand before. This is not something that only, you know, that has to happen only to big scholars. Anybody who's serious about this, Allah will open up. Because you're sitting here as a representative of His Prophet Nobody receives wahi after Rasulullah But there is divine inspiration. There are unveilings. There is divine insight and firasa. All of these things are possibility. There's been cases where I have been preparing something and because I was in a hurry or something, I couldn't really understand it. When I'm sitting here and I start explaining it, it suddenly just opens up. And believe me, I never had this idea before. It was not something I knew before. But some connections that you make between what an understanding it's... Ilm is really... Books are an excuse. Teachers are an excuse. They're just a pipeline between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You and the Prophet and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can give directly as well, right? So he was, then after that he reached the heights that he did. And you can see that from his books. After this, Allama Sha'rani, he established a lodge. When I mean a lodge, it's like a madrasa, a retreat. A place where people can come and stay and study with him. Learn from him. Learn classes are taking place. Dhikr is being made. So there's a schedule. It's like a place of discipline. Thousands of people would come there and benefit from him. He would undertake all their expenses. All their expenses of people that came there, there was no fees you had to pay. You know, he would undertake everybody's food, living, expenses. This was done not by money that he necessarily had. Right? This was done by, through endowments. Wealthy people, governors, leaders, they would set up these endowments. And this is something we're missing today. That's why masjids are always struggling and madrasas are always struggling because they have, they have done, they have abandoned what was an Islamic tradition of endowments, wa awqaf, awqaf. 
So before you establish a madrasa, you also establish with it a business of some sort, a seed capital, some kind of investment that will pay for that madrasa. You know who took that from the Muslims? Universities like Cambridge and Oxford and these other big establishments. The reason why they're so wealthy and they can do what they want is because they have these old awqaf and endowments from centuries that produce millions for them each, each year. So they can go over and above the fees of the students and do a lot more things than other universities can. And this is the Muslim tradition. I gave a talk once with this German, um, uh, with, uh, with this German uh, scholar. The, 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 the talk is on Zamzam Academy as well. It's about, he, he spoke about, is the Prophet Muhammad the capitalist? Right? So this is, this is all about studies in business and capitalism and so on. And he, he, he's not a Muslim either, but he said that these awqaf, he's traced it, they're taken from the Muslims. But today you have madrasas that are constantly struggling. All these madrasas that come from India every year in Pakistan and other places, and they're asking for money, they don't have awqaf. They don't have a source of income. That's what they should be doing. You establish a masjid, establish a few shops, a few businesses or whatever, get somebody to manage that, the profits are coming here. People know it's a masjid shop, they'll even go there and you know, they'll get more patronization anyway. This is something you guys can seriously consider as well. It's, there are masjids, mashallah, there's one masjid, they have, they have several houses, they don't need any money from anybody. They still collect money, but they don't need any money. Right? They've got lots of money, you know, because, and they don't, they don't need it. But th this is, this is, this is what, what they should be doing, to become self-reliant. Then they can really do that. The Muslims are struggling today because... They're just struggling to survive. When you have more at your disposal then, and you've got pious people at the helm, then you can give a lot of contribution. So he established his zawiyah through these endowments. And you know, if you're a wealthy person, then this is what you should be thinking about doing. If you're a wealthy person, you should try to set up certain endowments. This will be sadaqa jariya for you forever and ever. As long as that establishment continues right whether that be a madrasa you find a scholar who wants to do something but he's you know restricted because he doesn't have the money to work in london is very difficult prices are crazy in terms of property and everything so if you want to start something here our masjid system is based on committees which is the totally wrong uh, wrong kind of program uh, the wrong kind of model for masjids you know the masjid model that we have in England and in many Western countries where it's committees that uh, run, these, uh, run these masjids. It's the wrong model. Sorry to say, it's just the wrong model because they have no idea. That's why you get so much culture in these masjids and the scholars cannot really do what they want to do. They, it, should be, it, it should be, and there are masjids which have been established by individuals along with the scholars and they are successful. You're not going to get the politics there because that's the, 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 for a better purpose. They won't always be liked. You know, we love criticism. We love to criticize others. So we're never going to be happy with anything that anybody does. To be honest, you know, that's, that's the way. People aren't going to be happy with even what the biggest scholar does. Nobody, you know. But at the end of the day, they just work better. They're able to do more. There's no restriction. 
Because generally what happens when it's a committee running a masjid and they get a powerful scholar who's part of that masjid and then suddenly he gets a lot of popularity, their fear is that he's going to take over the masjid. They should give it to him. If he's not, you can't give it to every scholar. There are people who believe that only scholars can run masjids. Not every scholar a management, has a management degree. There are some scholars who are just into their books. They don't understand management. You give them a masjid, they'll mess it up. Right? Remember that as well. So I'm not, I'm not of that view that you should just be... People say, Maulana Salim Dorat. You know, he was a success story. But not every scholar is a Maulana Salim Dorat. Right? So you have to remember that. But if you are a wealthy individual listening to this, and you want to do something for your deen, you find a scholar who wants to do something, and you set them up like this, all they have to do is teach, teach, teach. Every person that benefits from that, every second of benefit, you will get. And you die, and that there's still benefit from this place that's continuing, and people are learning, and those people are then teaching others. That's your investment. That's a massive investment. This is, this is really important. There are Muslims have a lot of money. Muslims are well off. And especially in the West, mashallah, they've done well for themselves. Now do something. Right? And if you can't do it for yourself, get a few. And there are people who've done that. There, you know, there's, a, there's a group that uh, from America, they contacted a friend of mine who's into publishing. And they said, look, I'm, we, we're professionals. He's a dentist and there's a few others. We want to put some money together to translate this big commentary of Muslim and Bukhari. It can take years, we don't mind. We will, we will pay for the translation. You find someone to translate it, pay them good money and let's get it done. It's not an easy task. It needs a lot of money. You've got five doctors or others who are come together, business people, whatever. They can do something. It doesn't have to be one person either. Somebody has to raise the awareness. It's very difficult, especially for serious scholars, it's very difficult for them to go and ask people for money. It's, it's a different ball game. It's so difficult to do that. You know, you become a chanda guy eventually and then that's it. You know, you can't study anymore. You can't research anymore. Very difficult. But if Allah was to give the tawfiq, there's one scholar in South Africa, that his setup is beautiful. His brothers are all into business. There's at least two scholars who I know like this. His brothers are all in, they've got family businesses. They all do the work. They pay him to do the work of the deen. So he does free work of the deen. He's teaching, lecturing, writing. And he gets, a, mashallah, a salary from the family business. They run the business. But then he does all of this khidmah. But they get the reward from that as well because they share in it. But that's a selfless attitude that has to come by. These are all models that work and that can work. So he used to send students for hajj. Send people for hajj, pay for all of that through this awqaf system. He used to marry others off. And if they're dedicated to studying, he would take care of their expenses. Yeah, you go and study, no problem. I'll pay for your expenses. And he would assist a number of other scholars around with their food and their clothing and so on and so forth. The place was always a buzz. It literally says that it was night and day. There was always a buzz in that place. Literally the word buzz, the, the bees buzzing, that's what it says in Arabic. There was always recitation of the Qur'an and the hadith taking place. Eventually, remember this is in Cairo and you have the Azhar University there with all of his glory at the time. Big scholar sitting there. This is more of a spiritual retreat along with uh, teaching. 
and welfare work and all of this is happening. So it became like a competition to Azhar. In fact, it says that there was probably no other place with so much light in terms of spiritual light that was disseminating. Because it wasn't raw academics. There was a pious wali of Allah at the center of that institution. Unfortunately though, this is the dunya and all of these successes, they do have a, they do bring about reactions. And these reactions are not always positive reactions. There is an aspect which is the human failing of jealousy and envy, hasad. And unfortunately, Imam Sha'rani became target of huge amounts of jealousy from people. And it affected him in a number of ways. There were accusations made against him in his own time, of course, in his own time, which he had to respond to in many cases. People said that he's claiming, some people said that he's only a Sufi, he doesn't know anything else. I mean, subhanAllah, if, you, if I've read all of those tafsirs, and I don't know anything at the end of it, that then I must have been sleeping through it. And then the fiqh and the hadith and all of these other subjects. So one was that. Another one, he's written many books which some of the great scholars of his time, in fact one of his great students was Alama Munawi. Alama Munawi, his work is used today as some of the best commentary on hadith. Abu Dawud and others. Best commentary on hadith is quoted often in hadith books. Allah Munawi for his commentary. He's a student of Sha'rani. And that was another, another one was that he considers himself to be a mujtahid mutlaq. Like in parallel to Abu Hanifa and Shafi and so on. He dispels that himself. I mean, he, he, he was a Shafi and, and a very adherent follower of the Shafi'i school. He made no such claim whatsoever. A number of other things of that nature. And number three, the other thing they did at his time, and it was easy to do it at that time. Today it's a bit more difficult. Although actually it's, going to become, it's become easier with e-books. They would take some of his books and add things in there that were totally against the sunnah and put it out there as his book. In those days it was just folios put together. So you just add another sheet in between or just write out a new copy and it's, somebody's really serious. Hasad can be a very bad disease. It can make you do things that you would never dream of doing. Today you can do it by ebooks. Just take somebody's books, add a few pages, type it out or whatever, put it out as an ebook. Sheikh so-and-so wrote this book. And then today people don't investigate. They see what the media says or anybody says and they make judgments straight away. I've seen that so many times. There are some popular speakers today and I've seen uh, people will make up Facebook posts, uh, WhatsApp conversations, purporting to be between themselves and this scholar saying something that people don't like. They, all of that happens. It's just human fading. This is what this world and dunya is about. One mustn't be surprised. One must be careful. That's why be careful of what you see around. So Shaykh Abdul Rauf uh, Al-Munawi says about him, he is our Shaykh, the practicing Imam, the ascetic, the jurist, the hadith scholar, the legist, the Sufi and the, and the Murabbi. So these are all very comprehensive individuals.
He wrote a number of uh, books on other subjects such as Al-Minhaj Al-Mubeen on the Sunnah, Kashful Ghumma and Jami' Al-Ummah comprising the proofs of the, uh, the jurist. He wrote a number of books. Some of his famous students were Abdul Rauf Al-Munawi who died in 1031, another great hadith scholar Ahmad ibn Muhammad Al-Biqa'i, Al-Ar'ani, 1049 he died, the hadith scholar Al-Muqri Muhammad Al-Hijazi, more well known as Al-Wa'idh Al-Qalqashandi, who died in 1035. And there was another person who was so inspired by him. He was royalty. He was in line to be the Amir. He was the Amir. Governor, special Amir of the area. He left that to study with him. His name was Amir Hassan Bak al-Sanjak. He abandoned his Imara, his leadership, to become a student and to study and follow the path of, of uh, academics and studying. Uh, Imam Sha'arani left numerous books on many subjects and he has actually written his own autobiography. His own biography has been written by him, Lata'iful Minan. I believe that's, that's the one. He departed this world on the 12th of Jumad al Ula, 973 Hijri. So, mashallah, he had a good. Um, 80, just less than 80 years. Just less than 80 years. He died in 1565, Gregorian. 1565, so about 500 years, uh, just less than 500 years ago. Just less than that. His final words were, I am departing to my merciful and noble Lord. To be honest, that is the summary, the conclusion and the fruit, the cream of his whole life. If you can say that at your death, then there's nothing more valuable than that. <coughs> that if I can say, and we can all say at our death, as we're about to die, I'm departing to my merciful and noble Lord. You can imagine, at that time, which is a serious moment, a critical time, mind is, where's our mind at that time? We're dying. Imagine, you know when you go on a holiday, do you just pick up a bag and walk? Or do you have to tie up many loose ends before you go? Make sure the boiler's off and make sure this is off and make sure the doors are locked and make sure, you know, your bills have been paid. You know, there's a lot of things that you have to do before you take any journey of this world. You can't just take a bag and walk off. Right? Unless you're flying every day and going for two days or whatever, right? Generally, imagine the life of the hereafter. You have to go there. And at that time you can... Be very comfortable about knowing where you're going. Your mind is not about what you're leaving. It's about where you're going. Because even when you depart for a holiday today, your mind is still at home. You get to the hotel, uh, you get to the airport, and you think, did I lock the door? You know, the shaitan even brings that idea to your head. But here, forward thinking, forward thinking, always. And that's how it is. If a pious person is always forward thinking in this world, this is what's going to happen hereafter. This is what's going to happen in the last moments of their life. So this is the great scholar. This is the great scholar, Allama Sha'rani. And inshallah, we'll be looking at what he has to say from, with all of this experience, the conclusions of his work. And this is a very popular book of his. This is a very important book of his that we're going to be covering, inshallah, which is on the etiquette of companionship. Because he believes that the secret of success in this world and the hereafter lies in that. Inshallah, that's what we'll be looking at from the next class, inshallah.